Welcome to Family Business Today, where we feature prominent local and national family business owners. We also talk to top family business experts to discuss relevant topics, including communications, business culture, family relationships, succession and estate planning, values, as well as conflict resolution. Brought to you by the Tennessee Center for Family Business, I'm your host, Greg Lewis. Our guest today is Tim Jamison, Vice President of Prairie Capital Advisors in Louisville, Kentucky. Founded in 1996, Prairie provides investment banking, ESOP advisory, and valuation advisory services to support the growth and ownership transition strategies of middle market companies. They help business owners understand, evaluate, and implement ownership transition strategies of a wide variety of types and over varying timelines. Prairie Capital Advisors is an employee-owned company having implemented an employee stock ownership plan, an ESOP, on January 1, 2012. The ESOP provides qualified employees with 43% ownership of the firm. On today's podcast, we we will be talking about what is an employee stock ownership plan, an ESOP, and how can it benefit a family business planning a successful transition. Well, hello, Tim. Hi, Greg. Hey, thank you for joining us on Family Business Today uh, to learn more about the employee stock ownership plans, better known as an ESOP. So first of all, Tim, tell us exactly what an employee stock ownership plan or an ESOP is. Yeah, sure. Well, first of all, thanks for having me today. And, you know, an employee stock ownership plan is a form of ownership transition that a lot of business owners take where essentially they transfer the value of the company over to the employees uh, over time. So the business owner or business owners will sell their shares into a trust. The trust holds the shares and it allocates it or allocates those shares to the employee base over a period of time, depending on how they structure the transaction. It's a great way to reward the employees that have helped business owner or business owners build the company from the ground up. Uh, and it's a great exit strategy for a lot of business owners who are looking to maintain culture, maintain legacy, and again, reward those employees who have helped them build their company. Hmm. Okay. So, so let's say a company is listening to this and they've said, I've, I've been thinking about an ESOP, but what would be the, some of the characteristics of a, an ideal company that an ESOP would work best in? Yeah, sure. So we do uh, business with all kinds of different companies, um, various levels of revenue. I mean, typically, typically our revenues or company base are between 10 and 250 million. Mm -hmm. That's not a disqualifier if you're below that. And we actually do a lot of work for companies that are bigger than that. Mm -hmm. But a lot, this is very attractive to a lot of family owned businesses, a lot of small to middle market type businesses. So what we look for and what uh, the trustee typically looks for in a transaction is a company that's profitable, of course, and growing, that has good growth prospects for the future, a really strong, solid operating model. Uh, they they want to maintain that culture, maintain that legacy. We deal with a lot of business owners who are looking to transition their ownership, but the last thing they want to do is sell their company to a third party, whether it be another strategic company or a private equity buyer because they're afraid that what they've built over time will go away when they do that. Um, so it's those folks who are still looking for that independence and, and growing the business the way they have over time. Uh, there's all kinds of tax 
uh, favorability from doing an ESOP. So a lot of the business owners we deal with like the fact that uh, if you're a C-Corp owner, there's some tax deferral on the gain. If you're an S-Corp, then you don't pay taxes uh, anymore, which which we can get into later. And then we also look at companies that aren't very heavily debt constrained either because as part of the ESOP transaction, you will take some debt on from the transaction. So we're, the last thing we want to do is is layer on a level of debt into a company that's already highly levered because that could be uh, very mm-hmm. detrimental to the company. Mm-hmm. So there's lots of characteristics. You don't have to have all those to be a strong ESOP candidate, but it is good to have a mixture of those uh, that I mentioned. Okay. Well, you mentioned uh, a few of the benefits, uh, that there are several benefits to it. Uh, could you re- maybe reiterate on a couple, a couple of those? You mentioned something about the owners can remain some control in the company. Uh, could you maybe reiterate if just a few of the benefits there would be to the company? Yeah, so the basically in an ESOP transaction, you're not giving up control per se of the management or running of the company. Uh, the ESOP trustee is actually looking for business owners who are looking to stay on board, at least for a small period of time to keep the business going and then turn it over to um, the folks within the company that are ready to take over. So the control stays with the business owner, and then those who are directly working closely to him. And when I when I say control, not ownership control, but actually still running the company the way you want to, it's very different than an M&A transaction where the buyer is going to come in and want to impose their will mm-hmm. and impose their strategy and their vision. In an ESOP transaction, the last thing the trustee wants to do is get involved in the business. That's not what they do for a living. That's not what they're good at. And so essentially they want to buy a company and and maintain the shares of a company that's going to continue the path that it's taken over time. So they want the business owner to maintain control of the company in terms of the management per se, and then turn it over to the appropriate people at the appropriate time. So they're not looking to come in and change the business. They're looking to actually see the business continue as it was. Mm -hmm. So that that's one very favorable aspect of an ESOP. You don't have to worry about a third party coming in and changing everything that that you've done. There's all kinds of tax favorability and and tax impacts on an ESOP. If you're a C-Corp business owner, you can take the capital gains that you make from selling your company and do what's called a 1042 transaction where you're investing the proceeds in qualified replacement property, which is essentially U.S. stocks and bonds and that helps you defer the taxes on that gain for a period of time. Mm-hmm. So you don't have a big tax hit right when you do the transaction. You can defer that tax hit down the road. And and one of the most favorable aspects of an ESOP and one that a lot of people focus on, and we get a lot of interest, even with the reduced tax rates from the new Trump legislation, is that if you're an S-Corp ESOP, if you're 100% S-Corp ESOP, then you don't pay any federal taxes. And that's not a tax deferral. That's literally you do not pay federal taxes because the ESOP trustee is a tax sheltered entity. So let's say you paid, I'm just going to throw out a number, you paid $500,000 in federal taxes last year. If you become an S-Corp ESOP, then that $500,000 would have been zero. And that's pure money that goes back into the pocket of the company, back into the company shareholders, et cetera. And again, it's not a deferral. It is it is a tax-exempt entity, so if you're an S-Corp ESOP, you do not pay any taxes at all from a federal perspective, mm-hmm. and in a lot of cases, state perspective as well. 
Okay, that's very, very, very interesting. Thank you. So you've mentioned the uh, the term trustee uh, a few times here. Uh, tell tell me a little bit more. Uh, what is a trustee, and how does that relate to this uh, uh, setting up an ESOP in your company? Yeah, sure. So we always like to explain ESOPs as a, a different form of an M and A transaction. They're still a buyer okay. and a seller, except it's a little bit different in an ESOP transaction. There's a party in the middle that's negotiating the transaction and actually holding the shares. So if you're a company that's looking to form an ESOP, you're the seller. And so basically you're selling the shares into an ESOP trust. And there's um, you know quite a few ESOP trustees out in the marketplace that are doing this type of work, both uh, large institutionals, uh, but a lot of uh, mom-and-pop type businesses as well and, and smaller ESOP trustee companies that are that middleman basically negotiating the transaction. So a company would uh, hire someone like Prairie to be their financial advisor to help form the ESOP. We would come up with a value for the company. We would then help the company select an ESOP trustee, and then we would make an offer to the ESOP trustee to buy the shares for a certain price under certain terms, et cetera. The ESOP trustees are going to hire someone to advise them on the transaction, and that party is going to come into evaluation, et cetera, and help the ESOP trustee negotiate the transaction. So the ESOP trustee is the person or the entity in the middle, if you will, mm-hmm. making sure that the transaction is done at pure fair market value and that the employees um, benefit from the transaction. The, the ESOP trustee is not incentivized to – um, sell high or buy low or vice versa. Their their job and their role is to make sure that the transaction gets done at fair market value so that the business owners don't profit too much at, at the detriment of the employees or that the transaction gets done too low so the business owners are affected detrimentally and the employees benefit. Because mm-hmm. an ESOP transaction has to be done at pure fair market value. Okay. And that's what the ESOP trustee's role is. So they're kind of the middle party. And then essentially, once the deal is done, the shares of the company go into the trust that the ESOP trustee maintains, and then those shares are allocated over to the employee base over a period of several years. I see. I see. Thank you. Thank you for clarifying that. Uh, so, Tim, uh, you've, we've talked about the benefit to the company mm-hmm. and this fairness or equality between the uh, owners and the employees. So, Maybe a little bit more about how does the ESOP uh, benefit the employees of the company? Yeah, sure. Uh, it's basically another retirement plan. So essentially what happens is in an ESOP transaction, let's say a deal closes on July 1st of this year, and there's 100,000 shares, so to speak. Uh, those shares do not get allocated to the employees who are employed as of July 1st. Those 100 shares go into a trust. And those shares get allocated over time, anywhere from 10 to 30 years, Mm -hmm. typically depending on how the company wants to structure it. So that protects those employees who are coming in at a later date after the transaction uh, to benefit from um, from this ESOP transaction. So essentially what happens is it's another form of compensation and another form of retirement. The employee is going to get an allocation of shares each year based upon whether he's a qualified employee and essentially a qualified employee in most cases is someone who's been employed for a year, which is equivalent of a thousand hours or so, Mm -hmm. um, typically is the way it's set up. And then each year end, 
Um, a company comes in, does the valuation, values the shares, and then the shares are allocated out to those eligible employees as of that time. So essentially what, what you're getting over time is an employee who is with a company for a period of time, being multiple years, they're getting an allocation of stock every year. And assume, assuming the company's growing, which most companies are, let's say they get an allocation of shares on December 31st, 2018. They'll get another allocation of shares on December 31st, 2019 and 2020 and so forth. But each one of those tranches of shares, theoretically, if the company's growing and becoming more profitable, is going up in value. So what they're seeing each year when they get their share statement is additional shares being added to their account, but the shares they had the prior year are going up in value because the company's become more profitable mm-hmm. and the share price is, is, is more. And, and, it, and it's, a, it's a benefit they're getting that they're not putting anything into. So it's not a 401k match. It's not a 401k at all. They are getting this benefit just by being an employee of the company and contributing to the company's growth and such. Uh, and it is a qualified retirement plan, so it is overseen by the DOL, Department of Labor. Um, but that's that's essentially what it is. And, and we deal with a lot of business owners. I am dealing with one right now where his pure motivation is to help his employees with a better retirement. Because there's tons of studies, as everyone knows out there, that the large, large majority of employees currently are not going to retire with enough money to live their full retirement. So a lot of business owners who are very benevolent, want to maintain culture, want to maintain legacy, want to reward their employees. This is a big driver for them because mm-hmm. they're helping their employees save for retirement. Hmm. Okay. Thank, thank you. So, um, so then does, if you set up an ESOP in your company, uh, do all the company employees have to participate in it? Yeah, it, it's a non-discriminatory plan. Okay. So it, let's say you're a company with 50 employees. You can't set one up and say, okay, these 40 are in the ESOP, these 10 are not. Um, it, it has to include all members of the company. The only exception to that is if you're unionized. In most cases, the union employees are stripped out of the ESOP just because the union benefits are different, and most unions don't want their employees to participate in the ESOP even though it's in some cases the ESOP is a better benefit than what the union has. Uh, we have done ESOPs where the union employees are included, but that is one particular situation. We have to look at each, each one on a case-by-case basis. But that is one situation where a segment of employees can be stripped out of the ESOP because they have different union benefits. Mm-hmm. Other than that, everyone, everyone has to be included, and it's non-discriminatory. Okay. Thank you. I appreciate that. So, um, yeah. yeah, that's uh, – uh, Great, great stuff there. So, uh, so you, you said 500 employees. Some of those may be management. Some of those may be operators. At different different revenues, annual income uh, from the company each year. Uh, does everybody get an equal number of shares each year, or is it based on the on each person's individual uh, income with the company? Yeah, that's that's a great question. And, and the way the shares are allocated is essentially based upon an employee's W-2 wages as a percentage of the total company's W-2 wages. So if, if in, in a very simple example, if you have total payroll of a million dollars and your one particular person makes um, $10,000, 
of that million, I think I'm doing my math right in my head, they would get 1% of the share allocation because their percentage of total comp, of their total comp to the total comp of the company is 1%. And that's how the shares are allocated. Um, and, it, and it protects the lower income type employees because let's say a different case, someone makes half a million dollars. Um, their comp for purposes of allocating shares is capped at 265000 So the higher wage employees don't walk off with all the stock. It helps protect the lower income employees uh, that they get a little bit more stock than they would if you just did the pure number analysis. Hmm. So that, that that's typically the way it works. Your, your percentage of comp compared to the total comp of the company. I see. I see. So, uh, Tim, the um, so, so at the end of the year, when this valuation everything occurs, um, are the employees taxed uh, based on each year on the value or what is added, or is it weighted on until they cash it in? Yeah, it's it's all weighted until they cash in. So okay. all all that information or all that income, gift, et cetera, is all deferred until um, down the road. Okay. Very good. Very good. So um, so are, are annual contributions to the ESOP mandatory? I mean, if a company uh, didn't make any money uh, this year, had a down year, whatever, is there still a mandatory um, contribution required? The shares are still allocated based upon the way the plan is set up when the plan is put into place. So it's not a contribution per se because the shares are still sitting in a trust account and they're, they're, they're just released every year by the trustee based upon the methodology that was set up at the time of the plan. Um, with that being said, there have been situations with mature ESOPs that they do run into cash flow issues or any type of growth issues, and that's just when you would bring someone like Prairie back in to look at your plan to see if things need to be adjusted mm-hmm. to help the company go through um, you know, a rough cycle or so to speak. But yes, typically um, with all things being held constant, the, the share allocation still takes place every year regardless of the performance of the company. So, uh, Tim, we talk about shares here and everything else and uh, most of us may be thinking about shares being traded on the stock market or whatever. But um, from ESOP, can you distribute shares freely uh, uh, or or are there some limitations to that? Well, if I'm an employee of XYZ Company that's an ESOP and I'm getting shares of stock in my ESOP account, I cannot trade those with someone else. And there's no active market per se for me to trade my ESOP shares with someone else. Uh, the way I get to that value is to retire or quit the company. And then there's some regulations around how I get paid for those shares. So it does give a value to the shares. It does create uh, that value uh, metric, if you will, but it's not like I own stock in Apple or mm-hmm. GM or something like that, where I can actively trade it with um, on the open market. It, it's, it's very restricted in that, in that sense. Okay. All right. Very good. So uh, you, you may have mentioned this earlier, but when are the ESOP benefits uh, distributable to the participants? Is it always at the beginning of the year or 
uh, someone comes in in March or whatever? What what's normally the process of of, of uh, the benefit distribution? So typically, you look at the end of the year fiscal year for the company. Let's say it's a twelve thirty one year end. Mm-hmm. You would look at all you would look at all the employees who are employed as of that date and determine who are the eligible employees. And the eligible employees are essentially those folks who have been with the company at least a year and have worked a thousand hours during that year. Okay. So one year, a thousand a thousand hours. That's that's a pretty typical ESOP plan, yeah. Okay. Uh, so there are regulations as far as uh, the ESOP and everything else. Um, are, are there any repurchase obligations that the the company has to the employees of any sort um, um, under an ESOP? Well, sure. I mean, when an employee leaves, assuming he's vested, and that's one thing we haven't talked about, mm-hmm. is, is a vesting schedule. It's very much like a 401k match in that if I get shares allocated to me on the first year, I don't get the full value of those if I leave the very next day. There's typically a five to six year vesting schedule, you know, zero, 20, 40, 60, 80, 100. Okay. Uh, it's very customizable. That's the one thing about ESOPs. You can customize your ESOP as you seem fit and as your financial advisor tells you it works. But typically it's a five to six year vesting schedule. So assuming an employee leaves, let's say they've been with the company for 10 years, they're fully vested, um, they can leave and request their funds. Typically, most ESOPs have some protection around that so there's not a run on the bank or a lot of cash flow issues in that if you are fully vested or even partially vested and you're under 55 years of age, the ESOP can pay you out over time, uh, over a five-year period as opposed to paying you out uh, fully. And the exception of that is uh, in, the, in the terms of maybe a, a disability or a death, there's provisions where they get paid out right away. And then once you reach you know, 55 plus, a lot of plans have it built in that when you leave, retire, et cetera, then you get paid out right away. So there is absolutely a repurchase obligation because you're giving the employees shares of the stock and there's value in those shares. So when they leave, you do have to pay them, but there's some parameters around how you pay them based upon how they leave and their age when they leave. Okay, thank you. So, so you're saying that uh, as a uh, a part of an employee's estate, if they should die uh, before they receive the benefits of the ESOP, that that's a part of their estate, and the uh, company or the trustee will need to pay out those at the time of a person's death. Uh, I mean, there is a triggering mechanism at the time of death because that that's. Essentially, they're no longer part of the company. Right. Okay. So, yes. I mean, okay. the, there's absolutely a triggering event, death, disability, or retirement, or, or leaving the company altogether. Okay. Um, and to go to another company. Okay. Very good. Thank you. So, you mentioned earlier, uh, if you could uh, uh, maybe expand on a little bit, the uh, that the advantage of an S-Corp uh, creating an ESOP is the uh, uh, taxable situation or no taxes. Could you uh, explain that a little bit more? Sure. If you're an S-Corp ESOP, um, any taxes that you would have typically paid to the federal government as part of your annual federal income tax return um, is negated. 
so there there are no tax there are no tax liabilities from a federal perspective and in most cases the state is the same way you have to look at it on a state by state basis mm-hmm. but that's 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 it's as simple as that and it's not a tax deferral it is no taxes so mm-hmm. typically if Let's say in the old days, I mean, I'm a former CPA, so we always use 40% mm-hmm. for all of our uh, calculations and stuff. If you made a million dollars of pre-tax income, you would pay $400,000 of taxes. Under an S-Corp ESOP situation, that $400,000 of tax liability becomes zero. Okay. Very good. Very good. So we yeah. we get down to this uh that sounds like a good, a good opportunity there from a from a taxation standpoint. So, so uh, well, sure, sure. I mean, I mean, let me touch on that yeah. for a second because it might be of interest to some of your listeners. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, yeah, that's a huge reason why a lot of companies do an ESOP versus another transaction. So, just use that example of four hundred thousand dollars a year in tax savings. Well, what can you do with that tax savings? Well, you reinvest it in your company. Mm-hmm. You reinvest it in your employees. There, there's some really good examples yeah. of companies throughout the country that have been S-Corp ESOPs for a long time, have managed the cash extremely well, and now they've made multiple acquisitions. And we're dealing with a lot of companies now who have been S-Corp ESOPs for a few years, and now they're starting to stockpile cash, and they want to go on a buying spree. Houchins Industries and Bowling Green is a really great example of that. They, mm-hmm. They've been in ESOP for, gosh, I don't know how many, 30-plus years, I think. I'm not really for sure the exact amount. Mm-hmm. But the ESOP to them has been phenomenal, generating all kinds of free cash flow that has allowed them to go out and make all kinds of acquisitions. We have trucking companies that are extremely competitive against others in their industry because they're taking the cash flow, their savings from not paying taxes, and reinvesting in their fleet. And people want to work for those type companies because they have newer rigs and newer vehicles. Um, again, and I can just go on example after example after example of, co- of companies that have taken that tax savings and grown, reinvested, um, really thrown stuff into their employee benefits and such. And, um, you know, the results are astounding. Very good. Well, that, that's that's a great t- takeaway, I think, from our conversation today. That's um, so. Um, at some point in time, there has to be an end. Either the company is sold or it's transitioned to the next generation uh, in a family business. So um, there's a trustee involved in this. So, so uh, is it the family? who makes the decision or the owner makes the decision to sell the business and, 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 and tells the trustee that he's, that they, they want to do that. How, how does that happen? So you're saying an existing ESOP company that then decides to sell to a third party. That's correct. Yeah. So it, I mean, it happens all the time. I mean, Prairie has a very active M and a group, that um, we do pure M&A, but we've also carved out a really good niche mm-hmm. in selling ESOP companies because one of two things happens to ESOP companies or one of a couple of things. I mean, you mentioned one. Um, unfortunately, we do run across some ESOP companies every now and then that have come across hard times and they're having a hard time 
funding the obligation of folks who are retiring and things like that, so they're looking to unwind the ESOP. Or mm-hmm. in some cases, they just don't they just don't like the ESOP anymore. It, it was great for 20 years, but it's kind of ran, ran its purpose. Mm-hmm. But a lot of a lot of ESOP M and A, what we do is, you know, the ESOP has to be a pure pure market value. I mean, there's no strategic premium built into that. That's the way it's regulated. So we get calls from ESOP companies saying, hey, I just got an offer from a private equity firm that's way above the valuation you just gave me, and I can't turn it down uh, because my board would kill me. Well, then we go in and and help structure an even better deal and then unwind the ESOP. So it's not necessarily a case of the family doing it. It's it's whoever's running the company at the time, but essentially the board of directors Mm -hmm. has to approve it but you have to get the ESOP trustee involved in any of those transactions as well because they're going to want to make sure, let's say a company is sold at a 30% premium to the last valuation. Mm-hmm. They're perfectly fine with that, and they can look at that and say, wow, that's a really good price. Yeah, you should do that. But they will help oversee to make sure that when the cash is distributed to all the employees because ESOP terminates, and that cash that they have in their ESOP account has to then be distributed, they want to make sure that the employee base – gets their fair share of the transaction and it's not one or two people, the family or a couple of key executives that are reaping the benefits of this big premium. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that I mean that's how it works. I mean, the board is, it's just like any other M and a transaction. Okay. Who, whoever is, whoever is running the company at the time is, is going to say, Hey, we should sell this company, but we have to get the trustee involved because they're kind of overseeing it and they have to approve it. Okay. And again, it's, it's, it's becoming more commonplace. Um, just because there's a number of mature ESOP companies out there, and everyone knows the M&A marketplace is, is crazy busy right now, and there's mm-hmm. tons of both companies and private equity funds that are just dying to make purchases because they have a lot of cash. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. So if uh, a owner was considering uh, to uh, to implement an ESOP in their company, uh, uh, it's what total cost of implementing it is uh, what's it based on uh, uh, is there a lot of upfront cash that the owner needs to come up with to set up the ESOP uh, could you uh, talk a little bit about that yeah I mean essentially what we typically tell people it's, it's hard to give an exact number it's based upon the size of the company but total upfront transaction fees are just use a range of two to four percent of the total value of the company. Okay. So if if your company is worth twenty million dollars, for example, your transaction is going to be uh, between four and eight hundred thousand dollars upfront, probably much much closer to that lower end. Um, if you're a ten million dollar company, you're probably looking at a three hundred thousand dollar fee, mm-hmm. which is about three percent of your total value. That's the upfront fee, and then ongoing. You're looking at um, an, an annual valuation fee, a trustee fee, and some other stuff. You're looking at thirty to forty thousand dollars a year in ongoing costs. Mm-hmm. And and what and what we tell people, I actually just had this conversation with a company on Friday. Sometimes they get sticker shock when we tell them what the transaction fees are. Um, and the typical response is twofold: it's it's still cheaper than doing an M and A transaction. Mm-hmm. And Look, if you're an S-Corp especially, look at how much you paid in taxes last year and compare that to your transaction fees because in most cases, the payback on the transaction fees is less than a year. Wow, that's a good that's a good payback. <laughs> yes, I mean, so they get sticker shock at first and say, wow, this is pretty expensive. And 
you know, we since we do M and A too, we walk through. Okay, an M and A transaction is going to cost you at least as much, if not more. And then, you know, if it's if if the total cost of the transaction is five hundred thousand, just use a number. And you paid six hundred thousand dollars in taxes last year. You you pay for your fees in less than a year, and that's that's very very common. Okay, thank you, thank you. So uh, you know, family businesses, privately owned companies are just that. They're very private uh, as far as sharing their financials and uh, information. So now they've they have an employee uh, owned ESOP uh, set up and whatever. So what kind of information? Uh, are they required to disclose to participants uh, in their ESOP? Yeah, I mean, to answer your question um, completely or or just the way you asked it, they're they're required to give them number of shares and share price every year. And and that essentially stops there. So we do... You know, not only do we do does Prairie form ESOPs, we also work for trustees and do valuation work. Obviously, not on the same transaction, but we do both sides of the transaction. So we have about 270 ongoing clients where we're doing the annual update valuations for, and and then we're working with these companies, you know, you know, day in and day out, so to speak. And and we advise them. And, and Prairie, by example, is also an ESOP, so I can tell you in this answer what we do. Some companies that we work with open up the entire financial package to the employees and let them look at anything. Mm-hmm. Um, we think we think that's a bad idea. Those companies that literally just give a statement out every year and say, okay, here's the number of shares, here's your share price, here's what it's worth, that's a bad idea as well because the employee doesn't know what drove that. So what we recommend and what we do at Prairie is build a dashboard, have some metrics, and those metrics are very specific to your company, and, and Prairie can help work with you to develop those metrics. And then have at least quarterly updates with your company to let them know how they're doing against those metrics. Prairie is, is pretty simple. We're a service company, so we know what revenue is. Um, we, we know what the bottom line is, et cetera. So we have a quarterly meeting, and, and we all know what the budget is each year for revenue, and we have a quarterly meeting where we go through that in pretty good detail. And we all know at the end of each quarter how we're trending versus our target. And we know that's going to impact two things. One, our bonus. And then two, what happens to our ESOP share price. So it, it is a, it's a fine line. You can't over-communicate, but you can't under-communicate. And each company is very specific based upon what they do and how big they are. But, you know, you know in, in a very simplistic answer is you need to develop some metrics in a dashboard that gives them enough information that they know how they're doing, but doesn't give them so so much information they're overwhelmed. You, you don't have to, one of the misnomers of ESOPs is that you have to give them payroll information. You don't have to give any of that out. And, and again, you can give out as little as just a share price and the number of shares every year, but that's something that is customizable to each company. Hmm. Well, this has been very, very interesting, Tim. I, I really appreciate your uh, sharing uh, your uh, information on, on how an ESOP works, and uh, I think uh, it answers a lot of questions that maybe some people who have been thinking about ESOP uh, but maybe have not not been uh, uh, looking at it because of maybe some of the uh, fears and concerns. Do you have anything else that you'd like to add today? Uh, no, I, w- I would just say ESOPs are becoming more popular. 
um, th- there's a growing trend toward ESOPs. That there's a lot of business owners who are looking to transition. Um, and ESOPs should be considered. Um, one of the reasons that Prairie does other stuff besides ESOPs is while we think ESOPs are great and a huge uh, transaction vehicle for a lot of companies, it's not right for everybody. Um, it, it just isn't. You're either too highly leveraged, you don't have a good operating model, there, there's some other things going on. You, you want to fully maximize value at closing, and you want to build in that strategic premium. Um, but th- there's just some things sometimes that an ESOP doesn't fit to that business owner, so that's why we do other stuff besides ESOPs. But in a large number of cases, ESOPs are a great vehicle, and I, my only parting comment would be, you know, consider it. Get all the facts. Talk to someone like us and let us help you figure out what the right vehicle is for you and help us educate you. And if after a time of education and consultation, if you say, well, yeah, you know, an ESOP's just not right for me, that's fine. We, we deal with that all the time. Uh, and we don't try to put a square peg into a round hole. Well, Tim, thank you for being our guest on Family Business Today. To learn more about Prairie Capital Advisors, visit their website at www.prairiecap.com. To our listeners, thank you for joining us for the Family Business Today podcast. Brought to you by the Tennessee Center for Family Business located in Nashville, Tennessee, our passion is to help families deal with the unique challenges of working together in a family business and planning for a successful transition. To learn more about the Tennessee Center for Family Business, visit our website at www.tncfb.com. Until next time, thank you for joining us. 